This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I began Self Work six and a half years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be very interested in psychology. Maybe you're in therapy. To those of you who've just been diagnosed, or if you've come to understand that there's a problem that you want to try to dig into to understand more fully and to do something about it. And then to those of you, a third group, might be pretty darn skeptical about this whole mental health thing. I'm glad you're here and hope that you'll be curious enough to listen in to self-work. You know, you'd have to be living under a rock to not know that suicide rates are exponentially rising. And you are also highly likely to know someone who died by suicide. We know celebrities who've killed themselves. Twitch in the U.S., but hundreds of others around the globe. No country is immune. We know that mental health centers around the world are overworked and bursting at the seams with referrals that they're slowly trying to trudge through. We know drug use rose during the pandemic, as did reports of depression and anxiety. And we know with fentanyl-laced drugs, which is an opioid 50 times more potent than morphine, that that drug is killing more and more, often unsuspecting drug users. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death in several age groups, dependent upon the stats you read, but definitely from 15 to 19 and 25 to 34. Second, suicide rates in the U.S. have increased 30% in rural areas of the country. You're much more likely to attend a memorial service for someone who took their own life, either purposefully or accidentally, than ever before. It can be so easy to hear these figures and feel helpless to do anything yourself. But this episode of self-work will hopefully change that for you. It's very true and should be stated unequivocally. If someone wants to kill themselves, they will find a way. But there is something you can do for yourself, for those you love, for your friends, for your children, for your community, and for your culture. That's the focus of self-work today. Suicide, what can you do about it? There's an obvious trigger warning here, and I provided international numbers for call-in if you're needing someone to listen and offer support. And please, if you are actively suicidal, go straight to an emergency room or community psychiatric hospital. You've got to let someone know, because whatever you're saying to yourself about the world would be better off without me is simply not true. The listener voicemail is from a woman whose addictions seem to have been a huge part of her not mothering well from the perspective of her oldest child, who now has estranged herself from her mom. We'll talk about what she can do in this circumstance to help herself cope with her loss, but not allow the estrangement to sabotage the rest of her life. Before going further, let's hear from Athletic Greens. What better time than now to decide that you're going to do something for yourself in 2023 that will only add to your sense of well-being, where you can begin every single day with an act of true self-care, not a bubble bath, not even a therapy session, but by drinking one glass full of 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I use it every day and love this habit because if you're like me, 
Self-care can get lost in a day full of kids, work, meals, and whatever else comes along. AG1 knows that people who listen to self-work are seeking to make their lives better. So Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. Become your own green machine in the first hour you're up and around. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash self-work. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take ownership of your health in 2023 and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So today we're going to talk about how to talk about suicide. And I want to tell you today that we've arranged an interview that will air next week that will only increase the understanding of exactly how to do this. I'm so excited to have Dr. John Summers Flanagan on self-work, whose positive approach or strengths-based approach, as he calls it, to talking about suicide is groundbreaking and represents a huge shift in considering that when someone tells a therapist about wanting to die, that that is actually a positive sign, not the reason that that therapist should immediately overreact or the person needs to be hospitalized. The point is, a lot of people talk about suicide, and it's normal. We'll talk more about that in a minute. If this is a new idea for you, you're far from alone. Of course, it can be shocking for a friend to reveal this to you or to tell you they've talked to their therapist about it. But unless they have an active plan, then this conversation might reflect not that they want to die, but that they don't. I realize most of you in the self-work audience aren't mental health clinicians, but some are. For me, the reason that this episode is pertinent is that you, yes, you, might be the person someone opens up to. You just never know. And I want to try to prepare you for that conversation. It might be your child. It might be your friend. It might be someone you barely know, but they sense a safety with you. And of course, it might be you that needs to have this conversation. And if it is, then please listen. Please reach out. Let's have a quick history lesson. There have been people studying suicide for many years. What was it that actually caused someone to die by suicide? What factors played into it? You can find articles on its history, which makes you realize that it was often viewed as illegal or immoral, either for economic, political, or religious reasons, and often whatever property that person had accumulated, it was taken away to punish and disgrace someone who died or disgrace their family. In this century, due not only to the impact of the pandemic and the vast amount of fear, distrust, helplessness, isolation, and unwelcome change that it brought with it, suicide is growing more common. But there are also other factors. Jason Manning researches suicide and states clearly, clinical depression increases the risk of suicide, and so therapies that treat depression can help prevent it. But As a sociologist who studies suicide, I think the medical model of suicide is incomplete. My research shows that there are additional causes, and I'm going to add my 30 years of clinical experience to his statements. Here are his top five factors. First, suicide in response to an event. Not all who kill themselves do so after a long struggle with depression. Think of Hitler or many famous figures of history that have taken their own lives after sudden reversals, such as military defeats. 
certainly the pandemic is one of those events, and there has been a ninefold increase in calls to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline when compared to this time last year. Number two is financial causes, loss of material wealth, reduced income, mounting debts, or other financial disasters can certainly provoke suicide. Numerous studies document that the unemployed have higher suicide rates than the employed. Others show that rates rise during economic turndowns like the Great Depression of the 1930s. And even the Great Recession of 2008, suicide rates went up. Some argue in many parts of the U.S. the recession has never really ended, which may help explain the rise in rural suicide. It's much harder for farmers to make ends meet. And along with high rates of suicide go high rates of drug overdose. It's sometimes hard to distinguish an intentional overdose from an accidental one. So researchers lump them together as deaths of despair. Manning's third factor is shame. And of course, this is very important to me with my work on perfectly hidden depression. Reputation and good name are extremely important to most people. So all manner of shame and humiliation can cause suicide. Whether it's an investigation into corruption or an allegation of sexual misconduct, those can lead to suicide. I worked with a mom of three several years ago whose husband had killed himself for reasons that were never absolutely clear, but he'd been spending a great deal of money somewhere. She could see that it was gone or that it had been spent, but she could not see where it went. In perfectly hidden depression, suicide can be due to a fear that some weakness or mistake or simply your shame-inducing past with a burden that seems like it couldn't be borne anymore. Gossip and scandal are powerful sanctions in small towns and villages. The growth of social media has made people vulnerable to public shaming on a mass scale. Not surprisingly, social media shaming also provokes suicide. That includes, of course, cyberbullying. His number four is broken relationships. In addition to the loss of stature, people might also kill themselves because of a loss of social ties. Because we find that marriage, parenthood, and other sources of social integration actually provide a protective effect. Suicide victims are more likely than others to live alone, have fewer friends, be less involved. And America's long-term decline in civic and religious organizations may be something that is exacerbated Suicide exacerbated. That's a big grad school word. (laughs) I mean, I could just say worsened or made more intense. If lacking social ties is bad, the sudden shock of losing them is worse. Breakups and divorces are a common reason for suicide. And in fact, one study of over 400,000 Americans showed that the risk of suicide was doubled after divorce. And then his fifth is what he calls strife. Social conflict, where suicide might be a kind of protest, punishment, or escape. Tibetans have burned themselves in protest of Chinese rule. Women in Iran and Afghanistan have burned themselves to protest and escape from domestic abuse. Sometimes suicide is about inflicting guilt on someone who's hurt them, what's called a suicide out of anger or impulsiveness. The suicide rate in minorities, especially black males, may fit into this category. It's just a strife. There is tremendous social pressure. Are there other factors? You bet. The research we do have indicates that harmful effects are connected to social media use, exposure to racism, mental health stigma, lack of availability of mental health care, and exposure to violence and accumulative trauma. All of those can lead to suicide.
So, knowing all this, why do we constantly hear that depression is the major reason? That's just not specific enough. But guess what? When we hear that message over and over every day on television or Instagram or TikTok or wherever you get your information and your entertainment, there are lots of advertisements for drugs and medications that will, quote unquote, fix depression. Frankly, I believe that's so important and something a lot of Americans don't realize how much we are bombarded with advertisements for antidepressants. How many times have I heard, well, I was on Prozac for a couple of years, it helped at first, but then it stopped. When I ask about changes they'd made in their lives, maybe increased connection, more exercise, creating opportunities for bonding with others, giving back to your community, they look at me and seem to not realize that whatever pill they were taking wasn't going to fix things for them. I'm not anti-medication. Medication can help your mind become more clear. That's for sure. And maybe then you'll make healthier choices or risk change. But it's the action that makes the difference, not the medicine, most often. Now, this is not necessarily true with other kinds of problems like psychoses. I'm specifically talking about antidepressants. Let's stop for a moment and talk about early suicide researchers and what their findings were. In 1993, a man named Edwin Schneidman, who was the founder of the American Association of Suicidology, stated that what he called psych ache, or unbearable psychological pain, was associated with suicide more than simple depression. He called it an exclusively human response to extreme psychological pain. So Schneidman was trying to help us understand that pain is at the core of suicide. There were many people after Schneidman who look at this role of psychic, and even Sidney Blatt, who was talking about more the destructiveness of perfectionism, which of course y'all know I am passionate about, suggested strongly that we need to look at someone's life in order to understand how their depression was affecting them, not to follow a symptom checklist. But even given what these eminent researchers and others are telling us, so much of the data out there about suicide is couched in terms of having a diagnosis of mental illness. For example, here are NAMI's 2020 findings. 46% of people who die by suicide have a diagnosed mental health condition. 90% of people who die by suicide may have experienced symptoms of a mental health condition according to interviews with family, friends, and medical professionals, also known as psychological autopsy. But listen, that means 54% of people who died by suicide had not been diagnosed, maybe not even seen by a therapist or doctor. And what does may have experienced symptoms of a mental health condition mean? Loneliness, hopelessness, negativity, some anger, irritation, depression. What does that mean? They may have experienced symptoms of a mental health condition. We all experience symptoms of mental health conditions. All of us. In my opinion, we have to stop talking about suicide as if it's a diagnostic megaphone for mental illness. Rather, talk of suicide is a megaphone for feelings that someone is feeling that feel unbearable. Again, what Schneidman calls psychic. It could be unbearable shame, intolerable self-loathing, Intolerable anger, intolerable hurt, intolerable fear. But what makes a feeling intolerable? To me, when you're bearing it alone. When there's no one who you can share its menace or its full burden. 
and it could only feel heavier and heavier. It could be intolerable grief, the fear of shame, the fear of losing status or reputation, the fear of retribution, the fear of losing control, the fear of vulnerability, the fear of aging, the fear of dementia, the fear of illness, whatever. And intolerable pain could also be from a seemingly less onerous place, but one that is constantly difficult. I often hold up a pen in my office and ask my client, does this look hard to hold? No, is the most frequent answer. Well, what if I had to hold it 10 years or 20 years? Then it might very well feel like an intolerable burden, right? Right. So what we have control over now is what we talk about, what we claim, what we own, what we realize is normal. And we can talk about suicide and this intolerable, unbearable pain that you might feel or someone might feel, and we can help by listening. Normalizing suicidal feelings is not condoning suicide. You're just there. You're offering acceptance and safety, not stigma or shock. By normalizing that many people in seemingly unbearable circumstances think about killing themselves, But in normalizing it, you also strip it from any kind of feeling of unacceptability. You can hold out the hand of compassion and normalcy, safety and acceptance, and listen while someone trudges through those feelings. But they are no longer alone. You are offering them a structure. You are offering them acceptance. Talking about suicide isn't encouraging it. Realizing and talking about it as a normal response to stress is making it okay to talk about it. Many people who've been suicidal at some time in their lifetime will tell you they didn't really want to die, but either their depression, their brain not functioning in a healthy way, or the idea that their current state wasn't or isn't bearable made it seem as if it was a good plan, or at least it was on the burner. Maybe this person thought about it for five minutes five seconds, five hours, and Dr. Summers Flanagan next week is going to talk about the kinds of questions you ask. Let's shift gears just a little. Katrina Breeze's mom, Donna, who was known for her joy and participation in Louisiana parades and who loved to dance in the street, killed herself in 2018. She used a gun which she bought for that purpose. Her bipolar disorder had been unrelenting for months and she'd lost hope for help. But there was such an important factor here. Donna didn't own a gun until the week before she died. In fact, she hated guns, and she'd often told her daughter, Katrina, never to have one around her. Katrina and lawmakers in Louisiana had put together a plan to try and stop suicides with guns, which, by the way, constitute 60 to 65 percent of all firearms deaths in the U.S., By creating a data bank where those who don't want to die but need relief from what feels unbearable can deny themselves the right to buy a gun. They can renege on it. They can end the contract. But they realize when they are in a better place emotionally, they'd never want to die or even hurt those they love. They don't really want to end their life. It sounds brilliant to me. Whatever side of the gun issue you're on, For an individual to be able to sign something that disallows them from buying a gun seems so right. An Alabama legal professor, Fred Vars, has this to say. An individual would have the opportunity to suspend their ability to buy a gun voluntarily, confidentially put their name into the already existing background check system. 
and if they attempted to buy a gun, that transaction would be denied. Now, during a suicidal crisis or depressive episode, I think it's unlikely that anybody would sign up. But there are a lot of people who've been in that dark place who come out on the other side and know they're a danger to themselves at times. It's more like an advanced directive. Here, while I'm feeling better, let me prepare myself for that and just get the gun out of the equation. As of the writing of this episode, the bill had gone nowhere in Congress, but three states have signed it into law. My point? There are things you can do about suicide. You can talk about it. You can empower people who might feel that way temporarily to stop themselves. Gambling addicts, for example, can sign something that disallows them from gambling. Why shouldn't we do this for those with suicidal thinking? So talking, offering safety, not stigma. Empowering those that have these feelings to stop themselves with laws like Donna's Law. Recognizing that mental illness doesn't have to be present. There's one more thing you can do. You can model transparency and opening up about vulnerability in your own life. You can reveal to those you trust or to children who model themselves after you that it's okay to admit feeling overwhelmed or fatigued or even seemingly unbearable pain. Because in sharing it, in connecting with others, you can help them build a structure that will help to support them as they trudge through pain and hopelessness. And you can model your own vulnerability and the need to ask for help. It's what you can do about it. Speak pipe message from drmargaretrutherford.com. I just recently figured out that my daughter has not forgiven me for childhood hurt, but I wasn't there for her. And it was because of my addiction. So I'm going through my more emotions of depression, knowing that. So I'm just trying to figure out a way how to deal with this um, rejection and estrangement from my oldest firstborn daughter. But I'm trying to stay strong and believe that one day she'll come around. And tell me how she still feel. It's trying to figure out a way of working on me to accept the estrangement. Um, thank you. I just realized that this listener is asking me how to bear a pain that may at times feel unbearable to her. She seems to recognize that her oldest child has reason to be angry or hurt. She seems to take responsibility for whatever addictions were governing her life when she was actively trying to parent. What we don't know is what kind, if any, of reconciliation work has been attempted, or is this listener trying only to respect her daughter's wishes and stay away, but then doesn't know how to handle that? I wish I knew those facts, because it would cause my answer to be different, so I'll give both possibilities that come to mind. If there was a reconciliation attempt between mother and daughter, and if a third party was used, again, not just meeting at McDonald's and trying to decide if you can get along or you can be forgiven, it's important that a third party be used, like a therapist trained in this or someone perhaps in AA or NA to help. So if that happened and it didn't help, then the daughter may need more space and time. As the oldest, she's likely to carry more memories of her mom as being drunk or stoned or high or whatever it was. And she's chosen to remove herself. Maybe she doesn't want her children around her mom. 
All the mom can do, or perhaps the best thing to do, is to honor that. But from time to time, convey the message that she remains open and remorseful and lets her daughter know that, not constantly, but from time to time. Write her a letter. Remember letters? (laughs) Write her a letter, something that indicates, I'm still hoping that you can forgive me. I'm hoping that we can talk about this. I'm ready to hear about your anger and your disappointment. But then, if no attempt has been made, I'd wonder why. That might suggest a deeper family dynamic than is evident here, especially if responsibility hasn't been taken by the substance abuser or the parent. Or, if anything has happened in the present that suggests the damage wasn't just in the past. Or if some reference has been made to denial of the impact of that abuse. Again, I'm not sure given the info we have, but I do know estrangement is very powerful and painful. I certainly hope that if this listener has other children, she will reach out to them and develop good relationships with them. And as I said, every now and then, let her oldest daughter know she misses her and hopes for reconciliation. Thanks so much for being here. You are very special to me as my self-work audience, and I cannot tell you how honored I am that you download or listen to self-work every week or when you can. I want to remind you that I am doing sessions for the app Meal Mind, which is free, and you can download that app and actually hear me do therapy with someone with a real problem. Yes, they are paid, but the problems I'm finding are very, very real and ones that patients come to me in my practice about. So I really like it's Meal Mind and it's free to you. You can subscribe either where you listen to self-work. And if you do, please leave me a rating or review. That's very appreciated. Or you can subscribe at drmargaretrutherford.com and you'll get a weekly newsletter with my blog posts and my episodes here on self-work. That way you don't have to keep up with it as much. It's really easy. I'm doing self-work Sundays every Sunday at 4 o'clock Central Standard Time on Instagram Live. I also have a study group going for the book, Perfectly Hidden Depression. And if you're interested in that and want more information, you can go to my closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Thank you so much for being here. Please take very good care of you, your loved ones, and your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.